Hey Femcells, we just wanted to give you a quick heads up about the audio issues in this episode. We were dealing with some background noise and mic issues during the recording process, but we still want to share our thoughts with you. Hope you stick around and enjoy this episode on Poor Things. You gotta hear this one song, it'll change your life, I swear. I'm Kristen. And I'm Bella. And welcome to the FemSaw Filmcast. Today we're talking about the 2023 fantasy film Poor Things, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, and Remy Youssef. Yeah, we'll be talking about the plot, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos' filmography, the book versus the movie, uh, because it's actually based on a book, and then uh, the costume and production design, and then finally the feminist themes in this mm. movie. But first, before all that, Kristen, what media have you been consuming recently? Hmm. Great question. Great original question. <laughs> original. Um, uh, recently, I watched Mad Max Fury Road mm. um, for the first time. Fury Road's the newer version, right? It's not the old Yes, okay, yeah. I think so. Is it like a? Is it a really old franchise? Yeah, it's Mad Max is like a super. It's a pretty old movie. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I was just I was watching it. And I was like, this feels like. It has lore that I do not know. Yeah, no, there's a lot of lore. <laughs> I, the first one came out, I think, in 79. Whoa. Yeah. It's got, like, a James Bond type thing going it on. It does. Yeah. No, it was um, it was fun. It didn't really feel like a movie. It felt like like something else entirely because just the entire thing is, mm. like, a fight. And, like, there's a few conversations in between, but it's mainly just a fight. No, it's, like, all fighting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, I didn't really know you could do that with a movie, and people would watch it, but they do, and I kind of enjoyed it, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was fun. I uh, love all the different groups, and my favorite thing, I bust out laughing every time this happened, but, like, they have, like, people who, like, play guitar during the <laughs> battle scenes, and it was just so unserious, because, like, they're on, like, these puppet strings, yeah. and they're just fucking jamming out, Yeah. and so you're, like, hearing the soundtrack to the battles, and you just look over, and it's, like, the guy playing the guitar. Um, it is such a strange thing, because that's also in the originals. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't know what That the seems like a very 70s thing, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> it feels super 70s. Yeah, so that was so silly. I watched that during a hookup. What? What? If mom and dad are listening to this. You don't need to bring this up in conversation <laughs> when we talk about my podcast. But yeah, we were like eating a, a heated up frozen pizza and it was it was an enchanting experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Word. saw that. And I also watched Anatomy of a Fall earlier this week because I'm trying to see all like the Oscar nominees yeah, for this picture. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty I'm I'm slacking on that. Um, but Anatomy of a Fall was great. It was right up my alley with all the things I like. Yeah. Like, what was it about? I don't think I've seen trailers for that yet. Yeah. So basically. I think it's, like, in French and English, it's, like, a hybrid. But this woman, she's, like, this author living with, like, her her husband and her child in this, like, kind of secluded cabin. Mm-hmm. And then one day, the, the patriarch, he falls from the cabin and dies. And they're embroiled in this, like, court case and trying to figure out if he killed himself or if oh. she killed him. Um, so it's just, like, it's so good. Wait, and they have a blind son? They they do. They do. But it's, like, they take a little while to reveal it. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. It's, it's on Google. <laughs> true, true. A fun, a fun 
log line that <laughs> <laughs> drops it all. Drops it all. Um, yeah, I thought it was amazing. Lots of great monologues. And also, like, her lawyer is just, like... I know he's probably like five seven, mm. but like he's so hot. <laughs> like, like they just have such <gasps> intense chemistry. It's like, what if your situationship was your lawyer, and like they who, had to like who fight is for her you. lawyer? I need to. I'm looking just like this this, this guy. He just looks like a lesbian, mm. basically. Yeah, he does. He looks yeah. like a male lesbian. Yeah, and so, and so I really dig that vibe. Yeah. apparently in this Straight movie. Up. Um, yeah, and there's, like, a lot of scenes where the tension is just so intense mm. that I wanted to, like, scream in the theater. It's very beautiful. I'm looking at the... Yeah, it's very snowy. It is. I think they're in some really cold part of France. They definitely mentioned it. I just forgot. Mm. How about you? What have you been consuming? Um, I've also been trying to see all of the 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 movies for Oscars, but I haven't seen Anatomy of, the Fall, of a Fall yet, and I want to watch... Um, Shit, what's it called? Zone of Interest, which is oh, also yeah. would be very dark to watch. <laughs> so I'm like, I haven't been totally excited to go see it, I guess. But it looks like a really interesting film. Um, have you seen The Holdovers yet? No, I haven't. I have also haven't seen The Holdovers yet. I haven't yet. either, but I feel like that's probably a less intense vibe. Yeah, no, definitely. Because yeah. it's just like... It's just... It's just like it's just like men in like seventies or like eighties. Yeah, That's like the they vibes. got that one guy who's never acted, but everyone's in love with him. Like <laughs> boy of the month. That's fun. Yeah, which I think is so strange. I don't think he's attractive I... or interesting at all. <laughs> maybe in the movie he's like very maybe. exciting. I like yeah. Maybe he says really smart things. Sorry. Like sometimes when someone's just really smart and they're like, I don't know contributing well to class discussions i'm like there's something true. there true something there. true but no I, I know what you mean yeah something about a something about the senior thesis you know like, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of <laughs> no but media media consuming. i watched pearl again which was awesome i wanted to show my roommate it and then watch, and then me and her watch Train to Busan, which oh, I never watched. Love that movie. So good. It's so. It's like also just like weirdly comedic. Also, <laughs> like it, I was just laughing a lot. But it is. It's a good. It's a good zombie movie. I really like zombie movies, but I thought it was like visually really stunning and like the just the thought of being. I don't know. It was just done so good. Like, I'm geeking Imagine about it. Imagine being on the LA Metro. Literally. And there's, like... Horrendous. Horrendous. And the zombies are, like, just immediate. Once they see you, they just run kind of Whoa. thing. So it's just, like, really, like, intense situations and having to, like, navigate. Because they also can't really kill them. Because they don't the have zombies? guns. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like the people in the movie, because they're just on a train. So no no one has weapons. Damn. There's a baseball team, so there's some, like, baseball bats, but... She's yeah. gonna keep running. Yeah, literally. That was really good. Scared me a lot. And then, been hella watching Sex in the City. Very <laughs> into it. <laughs> I'm very into it, I gotta say. Um carries the relationship that uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is going through right now is very like a situationship <laughs> that I have. Oh, so la, it's, la. Like, it's beautiful to see it on the big screen, I think, you know, on HBO Max. <laughs> no, I totally need to start watching that because all the time I'm having hookups and I'm like, 
this is so silly. This should be a TV show. And I'm like, wait, it's been done before. <laughs> so I need to watch that. I need to watch Girls. Yeah, I need to watch Girls too. My my sister said it's like a little bit more realistic. Because Sex in the City is very like, just, there is a lot of things to relate to it. But it's also just like a bunch of pretty rich white woman and then Carrie's like a writer so she's like broke but she's always just like buying like fancy <laughs> clothes and like in debt but I'm like girl you have like an apartment in New York um but no yeah that shit is really good did your friend like um did your friend like Pearl yeah okay Ooh, was Sammy my roommate oh she's in the ro- yeah. other, in the other room right now yeah, she did really like Pearl. She liked Pearl a lot better than X, which I also did. And just, like, I think as a movie, it's just much more. And then, like, yeah, it's much more visually, like, stunning and interesting. The story's just, like, more interesting. Yeah, I think it stands um, on its own, like, a lot more. I think X is, like, so tied to, like, other stuff that it's, yeah. like, whew, it's hard to break away from. But we've already done a whole episode on We've that. already got the whole <laughs> Guys, stop asking me about Pearl already. Like... <laughs> Um, it is making me, it's reminding me, though, of this tweet that I did put on the Femcell story, like, a week or so ago, because Mia Goth got, like, is, oh. like, getting sued for, like, kicking, <laughs> I don't know why I find it so funny, but she's just getting sued for kicking a background actor who was, like, laying on the ground, and I'm assuming she kind of just, like, did a little, like, I don't know. Kicked him in the head, which yeah. sounds very violent. It and I'm does. It does. What, what is the context of, like, why would she kick you in the head? Yeah. Like, I'm not... I'm not saying she was in the right. Yeah, I'm never, just saying yeah. context is important. Context like, is important. And you are on the floor. So. And remember when Gwyneth Paltrow was, like, accused of hitting someone <laughs> with her skis? And then it was, like, a mutual collision? That's the real anatomy of the that's, fall. That's the real anatomy <laughs> of the fall. Um, I think that's pretty much it. And then constant listening to my podcast about this podcast, which is just three <laughs> New York comedians in their like 20s and I'm like why am I obsessed with you guys but it's inspiring us it's super inspiring actually (laughs) we might have our own powerpoint presentation yeah yeah because the way they do it is they present these little powerpoint things of each other I mean and their content is specifically like just random shit from the internet but but we're also in our 20s yeah and 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 major city of America. That's it. And also just looking at random shit on the internet. So we, like, we do that a lot. That's what bodies, I'm saying. Bodies, bodies episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Amazing. Well, I guess we can get into the plot then of Poor Things. This is kind of, I guess, a special episode because it's not... Yeah. It does not belong to a specific season. Yeah. It's just like... We know this movie is getting a lot of hype. Yeah. We both watched it, and we thought it'd be a good thing to review. So, yeah. Yeah. But, yes. All right, yeah. So, poor things. It starts Emma Stone as our main protagonist, Bella Baxter. William Defoe as Dr. Goodwin Baxter. Remy Youssef as Max McCandles. And Mark Ruffalo, one of Emma Stone's lovers later in the film as Duncan Wedderburn. Very insane names. But basically (laughs) it opens and we are in relatively some sort of Victorian London. We have Max McCandles, who is this medical student who is like very enamored by the work of William Defoe's character, Dr. Goodwin Baxter, as like a as a very just interesting surgeon, almost like Dr. Frankenstein type. He soon becomes his research assistant and kind of meets this woman 
who is Bella Baxter, who's played by Emma Stone. And she seems like she's like this childlike young woman and is essentially, I feel like, one of Godwin's, like, Godwin Baxter's, like, research projects at the moment. (laughs) His pastime, if you will. And he, Godwin reveals to, to McCandles that Emma Stone was this woman who was pregnant and had died by suicide after leaping off a bridge nearby. Um, and when he found her, he brought her back to his... To his... Lair. Lair. <laughs> his laboratory. His penthouse. <laughs> it's kind of a nice place. It is very nice, actually. It has a lot of space. A lot of open space. And he resurrects Bella by replacing her brain with the brain of the baby who is apparently still alive and this results in Bella kind of being resurrected with an infant's mind and so McCandle starts spending a lot of time with her and just like doing some like you know ground research just like he's jotting down notes jotting down notes while she's just eating yeah doing her (laughs) thing but basically in in all that he ends up falling in love with Bella and with Godwin's permission he asked for her hand in marriage Um, and what she does accept but even as she kind of just like as the days go by her intelligence is like already rapidly developing and she begins to realize that she kind of craves this autonomy that she hasn't yet had and runs off with the lawyer Duncan Wedderburn who was the lawyer who was supposed to be officiating the wedding (laughs) (laughs) and also during this time she like discovers masturbation she does yes she's like this is amazing and I'm horny and Mm -hmm. this is the secret to happiness and I think that also spurs the relationship with Duncan oh definitely like girl is horny um Max (laughs) McCandles is like no I do not want to take advantage of you because of your infant mind and she's like, and she's like, fine. enough of this age gap discourse. <laughs> yeah, enough of this age gap discourse. We've evolved past Twitter. And luckily, Duncan Wedderburn does not seem to have any scruples about this. He's yeah. kind of a rake. <laughs> he appears to be He's a bit a of a slut. Boy. Yeah, yeah. I would say a bit of a slut. You know, definitely enamored by her infant mind as well, which is just interesting. But yeah, so and she and also her discovering masturbation is so interesting where I'm reading through the Wikipedia plot and I'm surprised they didn't even mention it at this point. (laughs) But she does like not realize at first that it's a private norm to to masturbate. (laughs) But she, she and she's going the, straight into like penetration at the dinner table. Yeah, she I'm got like, that cucumber Ew. out and she's like, <laughs> watch this. This is crazy. <laughs> but yeah, so basically she runs off. She's like, I'm horny and I want to experience the world. And she leaves with Duncan and embarks kind of on this grand journey kind of across the world, starting starting first in Lisbon. And the two kind of just have a lot of sex. They do a lot of drugs, they party, they drink. Duncan gets into poker and gambling. Um, and during this time, you know, as she's in, you just taking in life and becoming more intelligent and just, like, more of a woman, I would guess, she becomes difficult for him to control. So he gets really upset with her. It was kind of, like, after a night, I think she was just, like, out all night and, like... It was the dancing scene, too. Yes. Like, they all go out. It's, like, they're all in the town. They're yeah. having dinner. 
And then she mm. begins like dancing, and then she kind of dances on her own and dances with other men. Yes. And Wedderburn gets super like jealous mm-hmm. uh, in his Mark Ruffalo way, which is just so outrageous. And then he gets into like a crazy fight with another person, just like as dance. she's dancing. <laughs> yeah. And so then he's like, "Oh, get in the box." Yeah. No, literally, <laughs> he tells her to get in a box. Yeah, she's just enjoying life too much without him, I guess. But. Yeah, so he basically just smuggles her onto this cruise ship, hopefully for a change of scenery. And while she's on this trip, it does it does not stop her from continuing to enjoy life. And she befriends these fellow passengers, um, kind of this older woman named Martha and this man Harry, who begin to kind of kind of open her mind to philosophy. But still, at this point, she definitely still has a like propensity to want to learn about the world in that way. So they connect and start talking about all these things like socialism and morality, I guess. (laughs) And at this point, since Duncan was initially attracted to her um, infant mind, he's kind of attempting to stunt her growth here by just like telling her she can't hang out with him. And she's like, whatever. And as she's just becoming more of like a thing which he cannot control, he begins to indulge in drinking while on the ship and gambling. And the ship makes a stop at Alexandria, which just seems kind of like a random island. And she becomes super distraught after witnessing kind of the very harsh poverty that existed upon the locals of the island, which was kind of presented to her by Harry in a way that I just felt it was just so strangely malicious. Mm -hmm. She becomes so kind of distraught by all of this that she finds all of Duncan's gambling winnings in their room on the ship and tries to go give it back, wants to go give it back to the locals and the crew intercepts it and are like, oh, well, we'll go give this money to them. (laughs) And she's like, oh, thank you so much. But they steal it. And while they're now unable to afford the rest of the trip, they are then kicked off the ship, Duncan and Bella at... um, Marseille? Marseille. In France. In France. After which then they make their way to Paris. So now in Paris... Um, she begins, Bella begins to work at this brothel, which further kind of enrages Duncan, and he does eventually have a mental breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> this bitch is just sitting on, like, on the same park bench the entire time. Yeah, and he, he ends up being, yeah, so she, she ends up just kind of leaving him. She's like, whatever, I'm gonna go make my bag, and sleep in a bed and have a meal and so at the brothel while she's there she starts working under this woman who is named madame swiney 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 i don't know and uh while she's there she befriends some of the other prostitutes including um toinette whom she begins to have a lovely lesbian relationship with and who also introduces her to socialism um And while she's here, there's also a very, like, kind of clearly a a through line of her exploring a lot about her sexuality. And while she's at the brothel, I remember I was talking to one of my friends about this, but just feeling, like, so afraid for her while she's there. Yeah. But she's just, is capable, I don't know, just kind of turns it as with anything kind of into just, like, something to learn about people in the world and yeah she has a yeah. few kind of like really mid sexual encounters and then she's like there's like a funny scene yeah where she says you know 
tell me about yourself or like yeah. tell me a childhood memory and i'll tell you a joke and then they do that mm-hmm. and once they're both laughing then they have sex and then they have sex so she's trying to establish i guess more of a connection yeah between her and her yeah John's. yeah because she's like wait sex can be better <laughs> yes <laughs> and so let's do that shall we and so yeah so during her time here she also begins to go to to school, I think, is somehow, like, enrolled in a school and starts attending classes as well. She's learning, she's working, getting her bag. And now, at this point, Dr. Goodwin has become terminally ill. And he asks Max to go find Bella and bring her to him. And he ends up locating her by tracking down Duncan, who has been institutionalized (laughs) now after his breakdown. Um, So real. And upon finding her, she returns to London... And reconciles with Godwin and has a conversation with Max where she's basically like, yes, I will still marry you. And (laughs) the two begin to, as the two on their wedding day are then interrupted by Duncan and this new man enter (laughs) (laughs) and enter General Alfie Blessington, who's played by this just very... British guy named Christopher Abbott, who's, <laughs> which is also an extremely British name. Um, they didn't even need to give him a new name. Like, it could have just been General Christopher Abbott. but It could be. Yeah, they really <laughs> could have. So he, Alfie's there. He addresses, he addresses Bella as Victoria and reveals that they were married before her disappearance and before her suicide and that he has now come to reclaim her. And she decides to abandon Max at the altar, mostly just to learn about her past life. But while she's there on Alfie's like estate, she just quickly discovers his very like violent and sadistic nature. He's like obsessed with guns. There's just guns any- everywhere and they're super horrible to all of the people that work at the estate. And she soon realizes that she had committed suicide to escape their abusive relationship. So Alfie then confines Bella to his mansion and eventually threatens her at gunpoint to submit to genital mutilation. Because he's like, you're weird and strange and different, and I think it's because you're horny. He demands that she drinks this chloroform-laced cocktail. (laughs) It is so involved of a situation. Yeah, so he demands that she drinks this chloroform lace cocktail to sedate her for the procedure and she ends up tossing kind of the cocktail into his face causing Alfie to shoot himself in the foot before passing out she's then able to escape returns to Godwin's side who dies peacefully with her and Max at his bedside and so Bella then decides to carry on Godwin's work with the help of Max and Toinette and at this point Alfie's brain has now been swapped for that of a quote. The final shot is just a pan of this beautiful garden of at Godwin's home and Alfie just eating grass. <laughs> Munching on some grass. Munching on some grass. Yeah, they those. didn't let him die. No, I wish I just was like, okay, I guess if we're, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, he's not pregnant, so they can't replace him with a baby brain. They so can't. Like, well, okay, go. Go brain. Yeah, and it's nice that she ends up with Bella, and Bella ends up with Max and Toinette. Yeah, literally, they're this nice like, like poly polycule. How many people do do there need to be a polycule? Is three enough? I think three is enough. Okay, they're a polycule. Yeah, I feel like they're a polycule. I feel like three has to be. Yes. 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 Well, yes. We might need to refer to Polysecure on that one. <laughs> One of my favorite novels at the moment. But yes, yeah, so yes, 
That was the movie. I've said yes like a million times. But um, <laughs> what were your general thoughts, Kristen? When did you first see this? I saw mm. it during winter break. Been wanting to see it for like a bit because I had seen some of Yorgos Lanthimos's other films like Killing of a Sacred Deer, which I did not like. Yeah. Um, and I also saw The Lobster, which I did uh. like and The Favorite. And so, yeah, I saw it. I, this is my favorite of all his mm. films, definitely. Like, I think it's just a lot funnier and like the pacing is works pretty well. Mm. And like the absurdist feel to it doesn't feel just so overboard at some points because yeah. it's already grounded in fantasy. Mm-hmm. So I, I did like this movie. I did have like a few like, I guess, issues with it afterwards, mm-hmm. thinking more and more about like the concept and stuff like that. Yeah. But I thought it was like a pretty ambitious movie in terms of like style and yeah. setting and all the, the risks it's just taking with like the plot structure because yeah. it's a bizarre plot structure. Yeah. So all in all, I think I did like it. Yeah. It was an entertaining watch. Word, yeah. How about you? Yeah, I I loved it. I'd watched it towards the end of winter break, and I was kind of had a couple of days alone at the apartment, and so I was just taking myself out to the movies, taking a little edible, taking myself <laughs> to the movies, sneaking in some snacks. And so I'd watched it. It was a very packed theater, mm. and I was sitting in between two very lanky, large guys, which was annoying, and one of the guys... <laughs> When the, you know, AMC commercial comes on with Nicole Kidman, <sighs> it just recites the entire monologue. Lesai. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, well, now what? Do I just, like, get on my knees and take a dick? Like, what are you trying to do here? And, but yes, but the, apart from that experience, I, I really did really like the movie. I did think it was super ambitious. I, I've seen Lobster, though. Which I feel like, but this just even just like in the fantasy style and how it's like not, I mean, as much as it's kind of replicating this Frankenstein story, it's not grounded in a lot of like mainstream stories. Yeah. And so, but it which was made it really fun to watch because it was like a story that I'd never knew about. And I was really liked kind of how a part of her story is being a sex worker. And like, I, I really was super, like, I think what I loved most about it was, like, sex as, like, the through line in it and, like, how she kind of utilized that as, like, a way to, like, kind of understand the world that she's in and, like, yeah. I just thought that was really cool and I thought that was dealt really well. Um, And also I just like any movie that will is, like, take a risk and show sex scenes. <laughs> Real as fuck. Like, no one likes sex scenes anymore. Like, <laughs> and oh, come on. Did it. I was reading the response, like, to this like, yeah. movie on Twitter, and people are like, too many sex scenes. That was, like, the number one complaint. It's like, oh my gosh. She's literally a sex worker. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I... I also really liked her relationship with Duncan Wedderburn. Yeah. Because it's, like, nice to see her outgrow him Yeah, mentally. literally. Literally. Um, it's just, it's it's fun seeing their relationship dynamic change on screen. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was super fun. I also love that her name was Bella and that my name's <laughs> Bella. Like, I literally, the last time I've had that experience is when I watched uh, Twilight, so... Amazing. So definitely I think better. this is, yeah, definitely, yeah, I was definitely like, better. I'm like, damn, this me for real. <laughs> Emma Stone is also just a delight. Like She's I, awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say, this is definitely my favorite Mark Ruffalo role, like, of all time. <laughs> he just did such an awesome job. And he's, like, such a strange 
part of like her journey. But yeah, Emma Stone is also great. <laughs> She's so yeah. good. When I saw her in La La Land, I just thought like it was just a really well written role, and like that's why she was coming off so fun. But she's just like, I want to be her friend. No, literally, she just seems so wise and witty. Yeah, literally. Um, but yeah, yeah, I can talk a little bit about development and pre-production. I don't have like too much on this because I think because the movie's pretty new, they don't have like a ton of stuff documented yeah. about the process yet. But it is produced by Film Four Productions, Element Pictures, TSG Entertainment, and Searchlight Pictures. And development on this film actually started way earlier than I thought. It's like started in two thousand nine. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which is wild because like none of his like really I guess popular movies had come out yet, mm-hmm. so it was like a very ambitious project to fixate on yeah. when you're at, at that stage um, and i also feel like it's super specific to now like the story just makes so much sense as a movie to be released in like 2023 exactly yeah the two, early 2000s would not be no able to handle they shit. would not be able to <laughs> if people are complaining about sex in this day and age <laughs> how would people feel in 2009 literally real but true but yeah, in 2009, Lanthimos went to Scotland to discuss the book with the author of Poor Things, Alistair Gray, which is like, what a name. What a name. Yeah, for this like, of course he wrote this. <laughs> of course he wrote this story. Yeah. And unfortunately, he died in 2019, Aww. so he didn't get to see the film get made. I wonder if um, he would have liked it. I hope so. I yeah. hope so. He seemed pretty enthusiastic about the project. I have a quote here from Lanthimos um, mm. saying, he was very energetic and special. He was 80-something when we met, and as soon as I got there, he had seen Dogtooth and said, I had my friend put on the DVD because I don't know how to operate these things, but I think you're a very talented young man. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then Gray took him on a personal tour of Glasgow, which is, is super sweet. Yeah. Yeah. How fun. And I guess there was just, like, a really long period in between that where, you know, you sit on the project, you put that on the back burner because that's going to be expensive. Yeah. And so after filming The Favorite in 2018, which was more expensive and did pretty well critically, Lanthimos decided to revisit the project. And then he talked with Emma Stone about it, who who starred in The Favorite. And then he started developing Poor Things pretty actively during the pandemic. Yeah. And then Poor Things as a movie was announced in February 2021. And this time, instead of just being the lead actress, Emma Stone was also a producer on it. And she says, I was very involved in the process, which started during the pandemic. We were reaching out to people and casting and everything during that time because we couldn't go anywhere. Mm. And so then principal photography took place in Hungary beginning in August 2021 and then wrapped in that December. Yeah. And then besides that, I just have a fun fact that it is the first feature film to be partially shot on Codex 35mm ectochrome color reversal motion picture film stock. Mm. Um, which I actually have no clue what that means, to be honest. <laughs> but I know that they use, like, a ton of different lenses for the different scenes. Mm. Yeah, the the camera that they used, I just searched this up, but it, it, it just provides a, an enhanced color saturation performance oh. uh, while maintaining kind of a neutral grayscale, which I don't know why, but I'm uh, probably to get an accurate skin tone reproduction so oh neat she doesn't look so they don't look so orange (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> way true. Yeah. And then as for its influences, you'll probably talk about this like in a sec mm-hmm. with the style. Mm-hmm. But according to the cinematographer Robbie Ryan, another silly name, very American, um, <laughs> he says that Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula was the main source of inspiration. And then like other films that were kind of peripherally their inspiration were Black Narcissus, Federico Fellini's and the ship sails on and then a bunch of Roy Anderson films so yeah yeah so amongst those other kind of film influences other visual media that Lanthimos had uh, showed to his production designers who were James Price and Shona Heath Um, and he showed them several several paintings including one called the garden of earthly delights which when I started up I was like oh my gosh wow because I my friend Elsa, who I lived with over the summer, has a really big kind of printed version of it in her room, and I would always stare at it because there's just, like, so many things going on. I think the the painting itself is supposed to kind of re- represent this kind of heaven and hell and then this limbo space in between, but it's definitely very futuristic for its time. I need to get high and just sit in front I of that I know, and just sit in front of that thing. I mean, it, there's just so many things. There's so many people in it. There's so many, and even just kind of this depiction it's a little disturbing it is a little disturbing <laughs> it is a little disturbing i think there's also a nod to that in midsummer when they have mm, like the trifold beginning yeah. tapestry yeah um yeah it's it's a bit it's intricate and then as well for kind of the that really began to influence specifically the look of bella was this painting of a woman by this painter named <laughs> crazy name Egon Scheel. Um, and it's just this kind of young woman with very long, dark hair and pale skin and kind of these spindly limbs. That is definitely very much a trademark look for Bella um, in this movie, or for Emma Stone in this movie. But yeah, and so Black Narcissus is one of the film depictions. It's really interesting. It's a, it's a story about a group of angelic nuns who get sent to the Himalayan mountains where kind of this basically two of these sisters in the church begin to just really want to fuck they not each other unfortunately but they they begin to kind of you know rethink their vow of celibacy this movie Um, sounds so good doesn't it it's a a 1947 (laughs) british psychological drama film and you can definitely tell just like at the visuals of it there's definitely some kind of otherworldly appearance to it and very like vibrant colors while also feeling very dark and a bit scary and Federico Fellini's and the ship sails on is a 1983 Italian musical comedy drama and definitely for this you can see there's a lot of inspiration for because it's it's the set is mostly on the ship you can definitely see the kind of inspiration for the period of time in poor things where Bella is being quarantined (laughs) by Duncan and as well as Roy Anderson, who he is a Swedish Swedish filmmaker, and he kind of has this very distinct style of absurdist humor and kind of this very melancholic depiction of human life. A lot of his stuff is very has long takes and a very like kind of stiff caricature of Swedish culture. And when you look up for visuals for that as well, it's very dark and kind of otherworldly, but also still having having something very like kind of delicate about it in a way. Yeah, and then as well as, again, Dracula's, Bram, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is very funny because I feel like the, that movie, and it's a, compared to the other kind of influences that we've been talking about, is very camp. <laughs> <laughs> very, very. <laughs> yeah, but also beautiful. I want to watch this film now as I'm always, like looking at it. 
But as far as the fashion, Holly Waddington was the costume designer. And uh, uh, before this, she had done work for Lady Macbeth and also worked on The Great, which I... Wait, is that one with... No, that's not the Lanthimos movie. Oh, no, that's the favorite. Favorite, the okay. The Great is a television series about a royal woman living in rural Russia. Yeah. So definitely a lot of, like, kind of before this, working with a lot of, like, period pieces. As far as Bella's fashion, which was definitely very particular, she felt like anything lace or anything with beading or embroidery had felt super wrong. And so already kind of having this background in, like, period costumes, she was kind of looking at these silhouettes of the 1890s and a lot of 1980s vintage patterns that just kind of, like, emphasized things with like very big power sleeves and but also a lot of lightness in the in the entirety of the of the piece and as she was showing Lanthimos kind of like her color palette for the fashion he was like oh yes exactly like the colors of a rotten apple (laughs) (laughs) which I think is just so on point for a lot of the film and a lot of the things that we see Bella in but um so kind of first we see her in in the beginning of the film um, in her like kind of early stage of development not only in her early stage of development but also just like seemingly infantilized by Dr. Um, Godwin and the maid and she's kind of she's wearing these baby clothes she's never really properly dressed she's always missing something kind of usually her shoes or her pants the fabric that they use is very like kind of these quilting kind of looking patterns and a lot of ruffles she also is wearing something that Holly refers to as the vagina blouse and the clip blouse, <laughs> which I feel is featured kind of throughout the film as well. It's just kind of like the blouses that have kind of this slash down the middle with lots of pleats kind of <laughs> flowing from the side. So yeah, there's a lot of Victorian staples to it. There We see that kind of like weird bustle cage that, that Bella wears for a moment where it just kind of looks like this puffer jacket coming out from the back of her like as a skirt. But it still is just like a very mismatch of a bunch of different styles and periods. Like the poor things isn't really grounded in any specific time. Um, kind of both like vintage and like futuristic and so she had a lot of fun doing that herself. And as Bella begins like kind of dressing herself for the first time, the fashion becomes a lot of more wild and a bit haphazard there's kind of a moment where she's in lisbon and she leaves duncan in the in in the hotel and they kind of have this idea that she doesn't even kind of bother to put her skirt on because now she's at this point where she's dressing herself so she kind of leaves hotel wearing these like 30 1930s style underwear um another kind of prominent uh look is when they first arrived in paris and she's kind of standing on the cold with duncan um and she's wearing this very like big cheesy orange like coat and uh, Holly refers to this as the condom coat um, which she just yeah I'm looking at it right now it kind of looks yeah. like a raincoat it does look like a raincoat yeah and she she kind of just like wanted it to look you know because in this at this scene when she's wearing this coat it's her first she has her first sexual encounter in the brothel so she kind of has this idea to go with like this like giant condom but yeah, so, but even as she's kind of like now uh, involved in the brothel, Holly didn't want to do like kind of the usual like look of like sex workers in film. Um, she wanted to avoid any kind of like black or red, which made me think of like 
the woman and the style in Moulin Rouge, which is like very kind of like black and red. And she specifically didn't want her or anyone to be wearing a corset, saying that was kind of like a symbol of bondage. Yeah, and and as she's kind of like moving through these phases, she starts um, and she starts to study philosophy and attend these socialist meetings with um, Toinette. Um, she has her like dark academia look and has wears this very big dark coat and boots. And, uh, you know, as Holly was talking about it, she was saying like, oh, I think we see her in this look kind of sitting down first and she's in class. You're thinking you, she's starting to kind of blend in now with all the men in suits. And then you get up and you see her legs and you think, no, she's she's still Bella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was that was all the all my my research. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love her fashion throughout the movie. Right. And I think just like looking at the visuals that kind of Lanthimos had provided to both like the costume designer and production designers, I think they really did do a good job kind of. And he, he didn't provide to them as kind of like direct references to anything, but just kind of a, of a general inspiration of what he wanted the film to look like. And I think it all came together really well. Yeah. I think now would be probably a good time to talk about Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of the movie, and just give a bit of context of what his career has looked like before this moment, what has led him to create horror things, and his typical style. So Yorgos Lanthimos is a Greek filmmaker who was born in Athens on September 23rd in 1973. His mom was a shop owner and his dad was a basketball player. And so he studies business administration, and then he also plays basketball for a professional basketball club. But then he eventually drops out from business studies, <laughs> and in a quick career change, he begins to study film and television directing at the Hellenic Cinema and Television School in Athens. So throughout the 90s, he's beginning to develop his practice a bit, but he hasn't made any features. He directs a series of videos for Greek dance theater companies, which I feel like you can kind of begin to see some of the influences of theater um, show up in his filmmaking. He also directs TV commercials, music videos, short films, and experimental theater plays. Mm. Another thing to note. <laughs> <laughs> and then fun fact, he was also a member of the creative team that designed the opening and closing ceremonies of the 2004 Summer Olympics. Whoa, um, okay. Which is like, okay, neat. Yeah, neat. they're like, yeah, let's get that film film guy. <laughs> Are there any absurdist elements in this opening ceremony? <laughs> any blood sacrifices? Um, but yeah, he finally makes his feature directorial debut in 2001 with a kind of mainstream film called My Best Friend. He co-directs this with uh, the man Lacus Lazopoulos, and the film is a pretty big commercial success. It follows an insurance agent uh, named Constantine who discovers his best friend, Alexos, sleeping with his wife, Andrea. And so he has to construct an elaborate ruse. And the whole time, these two men have had, like, kind of a, like, a rivalry their entire mm. lives. But now it's finally come to a head. So that kind of, that, that's a cool start to his career. Um, but meanwhile, in 2005, he's also uh, works as the director and writer for this film called Kineta. And here he's finally getting into his weird <laughs> experimental type <laughs> film in this plot summary uh, during an off season at the Greek seaside resort of Kineta three perfect strangers join forces for a rather strange reason to recreate homicides which felt like a cool concept but unfortunately it was not well received by critics <laughs> it got 17% on Rotten Tomatoes so somewhere things things went astray but yeah he's already beginning to like not, not give any shits about um, yeah, constructing a, a traditional Hollywood film, mm -hmm. um, which is neat. 
And then in 2009, he directs, co-produces, and writes Dogtooth, which is kind of his breakout film. It wins the Uncertain Regard Prize at the 2009 mm. uh, Cannes Film Festival. And I had no clue what this award was, but yeah. apparently it just presents a bunch of like uh, films with unusual styles and non-traditional stories. Mm. And then uh, for the plot of that, it's about a husband and wife who basically keep their children confined to a, a compound well into their adulthood and keep them completely ignorant of the world outside of the property. Strange. Yeah, it's very disturbing. There's a very abusive family dynamic. The parents basically, like, lie to their children about, like, what a bunch of words mean and, like, mm. who, like how to leave the property. And, like, yeah, basically it's, like, a whole thought experiment. Yeah. So this gets a lot of attention. It's nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the 83rd Academy Awards. And then in 2011, he makes The Alps, which is about this group of people who act as the recently deceased during visits to their grieving relatives, mm-hmm. basically for a fee. That's their, like, business model. So, like, a lot of cool philosophical plots is yeah. kind of a running theme here. And then 2015, he, like, transitions into, like, English-speaking films mm. um, with The Lobster, which is an absurdist black comedy, which competed for the Palme d'Or at the, at the Cannes Film Festival and won the jury prize. And this has a silly plot. This guy who gets cheated on, basically, he, in order to find a new partner, he immediately gets, like, enrolled in his program (laughs) at a hotel with a bunch of other single people, and they have to find a romantic partner in 45 days, or they'll be transformed into an animal. Okay, so not... (laughs) I do, I do, but, yeah. 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 Um, And it's Colin Farrell. He's the star. And he, for some Mm, reason, he wants to be a lobster. He wants to be transformed into a Mm. lobster. Because they mate for life. Oh, is that? Oh, is that? Oh, that's kind of cute. That's fucking cute. Yeah. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and this one is definitely standout. Puts him on the map because people are confused and amused. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) In 2017, he makes The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I don't love this one. And follows a cardiac surgeon who introduces his family to a teenage boy with a connection to his past. And then his family mysteriously begins to fall ill to, like, a debilitating sickness. Yeah, very mysterious. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it stars Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, and Barry Keoghan. Oh, yes. Saltburn Slay. Saltburn Slay. And then, like, Barry Keoghan, there's a scene where he's just eating this plate of spaghetti and, like, oh, my God, it's so gross. Anyways. <laughs> gross? <laughs> it's it's really, he's, like, messy. eating with his hands and, like, it's like looks like Ew. blood. Anyways. Oh. He's so weird. He's so okay. weird. Um, Weird-ass movie. Weird-ass movie. And that was my introduction to Barry Keoghan, so I just can't, like, it's really hard to shake that. Like, I will never escape. (laughs) Anyways, in 2018, he makes The Favorite. He's the director and producer, but this time he's not the writer. This Mm. is kind of, like, the first time in a bit that he hasn't been a writer for his own movie. Mm -hmm. This one's a period piece that's set in early 18th century Great Britain, and the plot examines the relationship between Sarah Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough, Abigail Masham, uh, played by Emma Stone, and they're both vying to be the favorite of Queen mm. Anne, who's played by Olivia Coleman, who won an award for Best Actress uh, for Very this good. role. And then finally, that brings us to 2023, Poor Things, which is also not written by Lanthimos. Um, and also for Poor Things, it, he had to adapt it, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, like, I'm kind of seeing, like, the different threads that led to this point, his mm. interest in absurd plots yeah. and growing interest in, like, historical movies. Yeah. And, and yeah. 
and definitely his humor is also like a thread and i think yeah. poor things is the, his funniest movie to me because like the acting is like always pretty stilted but in this one it, it totally works for me yeah. because there's a reason for emma stone to be stilted yeah and killing of a sacred deer like all the characters were like hella stilted and i think like the the main guy asked nicole kidman to like pretend to be dead and then he had sex with her and it was like Man, like, why? Like, be normal. This, what is this grounded in? Like, should this at least be a fantasy of some kind so I could watch this in good faith? Um, but, <laughs> but you're just supposed to pretend that this is totally chill. Okay, true. Yeah, very chill vibes. Um, yeah, and now he's working on this um, upcoming anthology film mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of the same stars. Mm-hmm. And Jesse Plemons, randomly. Um, Super random. And it's called Kinds of Kindness. So, yeah, that's Yorgos Lanthimos. I'm still pretty iffy about his, like, career or, yeah. like, film stuff as a whole. It's not my favorite. Yeah. But, you know, Poor Things is great. So I'm like, okay, you have my attention. You have my attention now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did really like The Lobster. I mean, I hadn't watched it in so long, but I, I'd always really like weird movies that other people don't like. Because <laughs> I know part of it is probably him knowing he's writing these things that other people aren't gonna like and there's probably some joy in that um but yeah yeah and i tell you to rewatch the lobster now that i've been part of like hookup culture yeah and, like, love in the world and yeah. it does kind of feel like a rat race of like <laughs> before i turn into an animal before like, i turn into an animal yeah. bef- like i have to find these really stupid things that i have in common with people <laughs> which aren't really real <laughs> He got that. The Lobster also has a lot of displays of sex, too, right? Yes. I think they're, like, explicitly banned from masturbating, but yeah. they must be sexually stimulated by a maid who comes in every morning. <laughs> laugh out loud. Oh, I did watch that movie with, like, my whole family. Oh, my That's God. So awesome. awesome. It was so awesome. <laughs> That's so... That's okay. But, yeah, um... Should we get into some feminist themes about the film, or let me do like a really, really quick talk about the book, and I think that'll lead pretty well into the feminist discussion Perfect. because there's like there's a twist here. Okay, um, so if you didn't know, Poor Things is based on a fictional novel by Alistair Gray, which is has a long title. It's called Poor Things: Episodes from the Early Life of Archibald McCandless, M.D., Scottish Public Health Officer, and so. This is just, like, the book has a very strange structure. It's, like, Mm. very metafictional. There's three different narratives, kind of, of the same events. So the first section is Archibald McCandless's autobiography, which Mm. is called The Episodes of the Early Life of a Scottish Public Health Official. And so this is where he talks about, you know, Bella's conception, how she was a corpse resurrected by Dr. Godwin Baxter, and then she begins to pursue other men and travels around the world. And so that's the first part, which is essentially what turns into the movie Poor Things. Mm -hmm. And then this is followed by the twist, which is Bella's or like Victoria's refutation of its facts. And she says that her poor fool of a husband, who is um, McCandless, has basically created this narrative that has drawn on a bunch of like gothic motifs and romantic motifs from from literature, Mm. kind of in a Don Quixote type way. And that like he, like none of this is true her brain and her body are the same age and he's concocted this narrative so that he can cope with her infidelity. 
Which is like, just, it's never addressed in the film, which is really interesting. Yeah. And then the final part with an introduction and a conclusion from Alistair Gray, who mm. presents himself as like an editor, kind of like writer within the book, who's like also fictional. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about it like the discovery of the papers, even though the papers are fictional. So it's like a very convoluted structure. Mm-hmm. It works a lot better probably as a book, and I can see why they adapted it differently to the yeah. movie. But it does complicate the feminist themes. Because if in the book, you know, like, there's the fact that uh, Bella's story is being told through, like, a male perspective who is projecting his own insecurities onto Bella Baxter, and he has a specific motivation for saying that she has, like, the mind of an infant, Mm -hmm. and the fact that, you know, Bella refutes this and has her own thoughts about this, then it's like, huh, poor things prioritizes McCandless's perspective, Mm. and is this kind of, like... Is this a male narrative about a woman's liberation or like a man's idea yeah. of a sexually liberated woman? Of a sexually liberated woman. Is she saying her husband, like the general? No, she's saying she McCandless in his autobiography. In his autobiography. Like oh, okay, that. yes. Okay. But then there's like another reveal at the ending mm. that she has died and they do an autopsy. And her brain is 30 years younger than her body. Oh. So it's like so many layers. And it's like, who do we believe? Who do we believe? What's this getting at? But yeah. Yeah. No, that is, it is interesting though. Because even, you know, we have that in the novel. But even as, as a movie, it's it's a man who is directing. And men, mostly men who are producing the film. Yeah. Um, I, I did think when I was watching it. And it, it still comes to me now because... Like, I thought the use of socialism in it was very strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. was like, you're, it's not very, because there is a lot of, like, things to say between, like, feminism and socialism and, like, ways that, like, feminism as an ideology kind of, like, kind of understood through various, like, structures of life. But it was just, like, just felt like we had these feminism and socialism just, like, being <laughs> said as a term, a term for, like, two hours. No, definitely. Yeah. Like, I, I, I've heard varying thoughts about the, the scene in Alexandria where she mm-hmm. just, like, sees the visual, yeah. like, display of poverty. Yeah. Like, the actual wealth gap, which is represented as a giant cliff. Yeah. With a broken, broken stairs to the bottom <laughs> <laughs> so people cannot climb up. I was like, well... This might this might seem a little bit heavy, yeah. Especially because that's not what happens in the book. Yeah, what happens in the book? I think she just happens upon like a blind woman begging yeah. with her child. Yeah, and so like that's a bit more understated than you know. <laughs> yeah, literally seeing a wealth gap, a gap yeah. between camera zoom to people at the bottom, bottom. <laughs> trying. Clean. Yeah, and it's actually like even it's not even just like a depiction of poverty. It's like very graphic. Yeah. Oh, I think they're, like, eating a child. Yeah. Which is, like, mm, yeah. Yeah, I did think it was very on the nose. It could have made way more sense differently for her to kind of have this understanding about class differences. Yeah. And, like, at one point, I think she's just tripsing through Paris and, you know, her ex, Duncan Wedderburn, accosts her. And she's like, we're our own means of production. And, like, sachets away. And I was just like, well, like, no, unfortunately. Because, like, you establish, like, in the movie, it's established that she has, like, there's a brothel owner. Yeah. And she has to give her money, too. So yeah. 
She doesn't she's own not, her means of production. She does not own her means of production. <laughs> Literally, it's like using these terms without ever having really like a yeah, it's like philosophical basis in the plot, I guess. Yeah. I'm no, glad. yeah, that was funny. I was like, it felt so just like it's. It just is like I don't know if it's just kind of this era of like. Barbie like feminism of just like putting it on the screen and just being like hope it works or just like we have a woman saying it so it must be feminist like yeah. I don't know and it always feels like it's like one piece of dialogue and mm. they're like yes that is enough and then they're like all right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no I I agree and I'm, I'm not even sure, like, I know if there's, like, a more tasteful way to do it. There probably is. Oh, definitely, And yeah. I'm sure there's going to be, like, an era of a film after this one that has a better approach <laughs> to intersectional feminism. Yeah. But it's so funny being in this really awkward transitional phase. Yeah, yeah. Where, like, only the, what, what can a mainstream movie that's, you know, nominated for all these awards by the Hollywood press. Like, what, <laughs> what Like what can they really say? Yeah. And it's written by a man and directed yeah. by another white man. Yeah. And it's adapted from a book by a white man. Yeah. So it's like, hmm, well, okay. I can yeah. see where a few issues might yeah. come from. But yeah, regardless, I think, like, they, they could have, you know, brought a few more people in. What did you think about... I mean, there's, like, a lot of different threads to talk about. But, you know, what did you think about, you know, Bella? What did you think about, like, the portrayal of, like, sex work? Yeah. Or... Even, you know, what about her relationships with the different men in the film? Yeah. She, has, she has a lot of different, like, yeah. complicated relationships. I mean, I think it was really great to see a main, like, a woman who is navigating sex and romance in a way that I'm like, she's winning. Like, she's not, like, really necessarily ever being taken advantage of. And she's always very, like, like, when she runs off with Duncan, she understands it's not going to be, like, this kind of fairy tale moment. And is then kind of, like, has to, like, go on this journey and realize it's not a fairytale moment. She's just, like, going on it because she knows she can, like, use him for certain things that she needs. Yeah. Like, outside of him. Which was, like, fun to see. I was like, yeah, period. <laughs> um, and I'd I, like to see a situation ship where a man goes completely insane no, and has literally. to be committed. Because <laughs> when is that going to happen to me? But, yeah. No, it was really it was really great to see that. and And I felt like... I always was excited to see whatever she was going to do. Like, I felt like I was really, like, with it being kind of, like, something that's adapted from a book, it, like, I could almost, it almost feels, it, it feels like what I feel from reading a book. Where, like, <laughs> oh, I wonder what next chapter is going to be. No, and, like, literally. I wonder where she's going to go next. And <laughs> it was so cute just to see that. And also, like, I think one, like, so much of the visual design and, like, the set design and the fashion kind of, like, really fed into it mostly my like liking of it and Emma Stone because when you're like kind of looking at the message of the movie it, it gets a little le- less interesting <laughs> <laughs> that is that is real that yeah is real. yeah 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 I agree I've heard like a few people say especially in like the the book versus movie video I watch um let me properly cite that by the way it is from the channel why the book wins mm. and the book did win in this case mm. yeah, I've heard like she said and she said that other people have also said that you know people kind of wanted to they thought the sex work wasn't accurate because they wanted to like see Bella, I guess, struggle or like yeah. suffer a bit more. Yeah. But I suppose like it's also nice to like not have a woman suffer in every movie, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Like there is conflict in this movie, but it's not really in the source of like 
you know, like, sexual trauma or anything, which is nice. Because the movie's already taking on a lot, so I don't know if that, like, narrative dimension would have helped the movie as a whole. And, like, the actual experience of sex workers are on, like, a nuanced, like, continue. You know, like... Yeah, yeah. It's not all... I mean, as much as we could say, like, she is in a privileged position to be, you know, experience it in that way, it's also, like, everyone experiences it differently and is brought to their at different times. She definitely, I mean, there is kind of, like, a, like, she just kind of gets into it, though. I don't know if I'd have that easy of a time just, like, having sex with men that I find ugly and, like, gross. Like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, definitely. That, that's what's kind of a tangent, but... I also think they could have, like, been a little bit harsher on McCandless for being like, yes, I will date Literally. Bella Baxter and be engaged to her. Okay, yo, <laughs> this is, I have a question about this, too, because I, I haven't really thought about it, but I remember talking to this with one of my, uh, another friend friend of mine, and she was saying that she could, didn't like the movies was because she was just like, I can't just, like, watch this woman, like, act like a child and, like, everyone be just, like, weirdly attracted to it. Yeah. I'm like, it is such a, like, beginning point, because it is, like, what, what is the attraction there for McCandles, too, and also, like, Duncan, and also Mike Ruffalo's character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I liked the fact that, you know, Duncan Wedderburn becomes unhappy in this relationship yeah. because she's, like, maturing, yeah. and because she doesn't, like, stay static in this, like, mindset. Yeah. But, yeah, it is kind of, like, it is questionable. Yeah. Because um, you see her as, like, a young girl in the beginning of the film. Like, does she seem, like... I mean... This is another topic I wanted to, like, talk about, like, kind of the portrayal, like, less of, like, age, more of disability in this film. Um, Because I was reading my friend's, um, my friend's tweet and the Letterboxd review about this. This is from my friend, we met through, like, outright um, uh, Christopher uh, Economou. But, yeah, like, they were talking about, like, Bella's apparent disabledness in the first act of the film. Yeah. Um, And, like, they say, like, quote, like, the comedy of the first act, the black and white section of the film, is purely a reaction to the spectacle of Bella's apparent disabledness. Mm -hmm. Her stunted speech, incontinence, impaired movement, lack of social skills, meltdowns, and violent outbursts are written as a symptom of her literal infant brain. But it is impossible and irresponsible to separate her depiction from that of an adult disabled woman, given the identical rhetoric imposed on real disabled people, end quote. Mm. And, like, I kind of, I, I totally do see that comparison, because literally the way McCandles, like, becomes introduced to Bella, like, the first thing he says <laughs> is, what a very pretty arsler. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, like, it's really difficult to separate those, like, depictions yeah. at all. Like, yeah. I know there's the fantasy element that complicates that, and, like, the whole Frankenstein's monster, like, mm. genre twist, which also kind of displaces a bit of that like that awkwardness but um Mm -hmm. but yeah like he also says that her depiction improves as the film is colorized but only because she gains further and further distance from her disability yeah and i do feel like the beginning of the film did not like quite hit right for me like i was not laughing i wasn't laughing until she like made it to lisbon and was like actively you know making choices and the the joke wasn't you know on her specifically like wasn't just you know, on her masturbating in public or like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or like pissing herself. Um, 
Yeah, because like, yeah, it is. It's uh, hard to see a grown ass woman do that. Like, yeah. it really was. Yeah, and it's like Emma Stone getting an award for for that portrayal, at least at the beginning, is just like a little bit dubious, and I can kind yeah. of see why a lot of people. I mean, not enough people, but like yeah. some people are pointing out that like it's kind of a very strange start to the movie and kind yeah. of puts a weird tint on the rest of it. Yeah. Because um, especially if you're then going to continue in the movie to where she becomes kind of very, like, socially aware or, like, aware of, like, certain social issues as far as, like, feminism and, like, class and, like, gender, but then completely ignore what's happening at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And, yeah. like, effectively, like, leaves behind, like, yeah. this part of her identity. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, like, one another way to, like, kind of interpret the film Mm -hmm. kind of like look at the different depictions in the film yeah especially when we're looking at like how the men view her in this Mm. film because i think there's a certain infantilization but there's also the fact that she's very easy to take advantage of possibly yeah in like the infant stages um luckily as far as toddlers go she's a very angry one (laughs) (laughs) and it's not (laughs) i was very surprised with how much blood there was in the beginning (laughs) (laughs) And I'm glad she chloroforms um, <laughs> McCandles. Oh, yeah. There. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, their, like, attraction to her was crazy. It was. Um, it, at least for me, though, it didn't, like, it was, I could have suspend my disbelief enough in the sense, because in the sense that it is, like, a fantasy film, but it is just, like, not my favorite thing yeah it's like it's just weird to like look at their intentions especially because she like continues a relationship yeah. with them till the end of the film yeah and like ends up living with them yeah and she could have and there's kind of no reckoning for like godwin at all for kind of just like yeah she's like pissed off with him yeah but like yeah also in the book this is kind of bananas i did not realize this was part of the book mm. but like he created bella as like a companion like a romantic companion because you can only get off with like days of intellectual stimulation which is so wild um and then bella chooses to marry mccandles instead of godwin and then godwin plans to kill himself Um, (laughs) i'm glad that wasn't i'm glad that wasn't i did not want to see that relationship between the two of them it was he's her dad he's her dad literally She calls him, like, God for a while, which I also, I think I was way more, yeah, that was, like, super strange to me anytime she called him God, because I was, yeah. like, she's a, seeing him as this, like, actual, like, God-like figure. And did he give himself that nickname? Yeah. Or did she come up with it? Or did it? she come up with it? But, um, yeah, in the movie, they kind of just write it off as, like, he's a eunuch. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, he does not be fucking, he yeah. does not fuck. <laughs> you know, men can't, I guess, exhibit, like, appropriate um, relationships with younger women unless they're, like, cash. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a Wait, that's such a fucking good point. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what? Like, why, why can't he have just, like... Yeah, no, literally. Yeah, I was also reading about this, like, interesting trope um, that the book versus movie video referenced, which I don't, I can't tell if it fully applies here, but have you, have you ever heard of, like, the born sexy yesterday trope? No. It's, like, 
it's the common sexual fantasy in like a lot of film and TV show uh, where these like female characters exude a ton of sex appeal, but like other than their physical appearance, they just behave like a child. Mm. And so like it's in like the Fifth Element, Forbidden yeah. Planet, and even like Wonder Woman because she's like doesn't know about the world or anything, and yeah. the Little Mermaid. And so they're like slowly like educated by men and become. Yeah. The heroes of their own story to a certain extent, but it's like it's not fully, it's not really a feminist creation because they're entering these relationships with men, men. who are essentially taking advantage of them. Yeah, um, yeah, and like I, I think the the video said that you know poor things kind of addresses and subverts this trope, but it's also interesting to look out for in sci-fi. Yeah, um, for like men who create women that they can educate that they can educate <laughs> or, and like subjugate to their yeah. like intellectual physical yeah. emotional powers. <laughs> yeah 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 especially with poor things it's like it's a it's a literal young girl trapped in a woman's body yeah whereas like in most cases it's kind of just like a metaphorical thing of like yeah. oh she doesn't know the real world and yeah. i have to teach her how to like that like how to use a fork yeah <laughs> Like little, like little mermaid. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's really interesting. No, it is really interesting. It is, and I, I wonder, like, really, what is the attraction? Because there is just even the bigger conversation about, because that happens outside of film, like all the time. Oh, like yes. women talk, like just the the idea of like women needing to be hairless, and like how that attributes to like being pre. Like yeah. <laughs> insert a uh, picture of Bradley Cooper reading Lolita to Suki what? Water. <laughs> but... We won't get into age gap discourse, but I'm but... just saying. But... <laughs> no, because what are you talking about, Bradley Cooper? You haven't seen that? No, reading Lolita. Stop, yeah, dude. That's fucking gnarly, right? It's fucking gnarly. He's literally like, what are you telling her? Like, what is he <laughs> telling her? Why is it so staged? Why would you want that to, like, be your your paparazzi image? Um, <laughs> yeah, he was 38 and she was 21. And, like, you know, love is love is love. Yeah, I'm not, saying I, like, <laughs> I'm not saying I wouldn't fuck Bradley Cooper. <laughs> I would not fuck him in this era of maestro, admittedly. I would not. True. The maestro (laughs) era is not hitting. I mean, uh, you know what? What what can I say? I'd I'd still fuck him. I'd still fuck him (laughs) But (laughs) that was not the point of this digression. (laughs) Would you or would you not fuck (laughs) Bradley? Okay, I definitely wouldn't if it meant he would have to like mansplain me, Lolita. That's like so awful. You know, afterwards. Oh god. Yeah. Literally, how did she not just like? Never mind. I would fucking burst out laughing. Like that's just so cringe. I make him feel super bad about himself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Where were we? Fucking. I guess Bella Baxter. I guess like <laughs> the age gap. Yeah. It's always the age gap discourse <laughs> it always that comes we get back, back to. This. Yeah, but it but yeah, I just like I wish there was a way to like that we could have seen her like aspects of her as a child appreciated in a way that wasn't like attractive to men, but as yes. like cuz like for me, like at least I could watch it 
don't know. It brings me back. I was listening to our, like, a female gaze episode because it was on the Eastlight Radio the on last Wednesday. And, it, and I, I think about it so much, but just, like, the idea of, like, I think you had said it specifically, but I'm just like feeling watching something and thinking it's like really not for you. Yeah. And as much as like Poor Things was like felt like it was made to be for me, I still feel like I had to like pull my own experience out of it. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Instead of like getting like a whole experience out. I don't know. But yeah, because it would have been nice to see her act in a, and have all kind of this, like, childlike joy and wonder in a way that, like, I can appreciate at my age, but, like, not yeah. if that means I'm going to be sexualized by men. <laughs> exactly. And on top of that, it's so interesting that the book, like, he is characterized as a pathetic, spineless man. Mm-hmm. And then in this movie, they're like, he's just so adorable. I'm like, what? Why? We don't need... He, that's not even faithful to the book. He doesn't need to be likable. No, he doesn't. <laughs> and she can just end up with her lesbian friend. No, literally, um, why doesn't she? <laughs> yeah. So, that's things. I, I'm curious, I feel like we could end it on this question, but like, yeah. what part of the film did you like feel most connected to? Like, where did you relate to Bella Baxter? Mm. Bella. Yeah, literally <laughs> me and Bella. Me as Bella. Um, I think, honestly, when she like learns how to masturbate. Yeah. Like, I was just like, this, I was sitting there and I was like, this is awesome. This is my favorite <laughs> thing in the whole world like to see right now in this theater full of people. I think just like that, I just liked seeing the curiosity of it and it not being like really, I mean, as much as it was like, you can't masturbate at the dinner table, it was still kind of like not necessarily like demonized. Like she never like became afraid of it. Yeah. And like, and just like her, seeing her have like an intrinsic wonder about that is just like so relatable to me because I just like love everything about sex and dating and relationships but sex in particular so I felt like I really connected to that in the film but yeah what about you yeah I would agree yeah. largely with the masturbation yeah. part of it when I first discovered it I was like why don't people do this all literally the time? you'd be then, so happy yeah and then very quickly I was like wait this is not allowed and then like <laughs> Like, I had, like, a makeshift vibrator type of thing, and I threw it away because I was so, like, I'm a demon! I need to be gay. I remember, like, chastity belt me. Um, I remember literally, like, because at the time that I would started, I was still very, like, religious, and the Bible, like, really doesn't say anything about masturbating. I was searching up, and I'm like, damn it, I have to make an ethical decision and morality decision with my own thoughts. Like, just tell me if it's good or not. I feel like I'd be totally like, yes, free reign, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I just felt like I was cheating myself. You know, like, if yeah. I, like, did it, I don't know. I don't no, know. no, I like, feel that. Like, I... No one had, like, explicitly told me that, like, masturbation was so wrong. Yeah. But for some reason, I was like, this is evil. And I don't yeah. even know where that came from. Like, there wasn't, like, the candles coming in and being like, don't masturbate at the dinner table. That's for <laughs> private time. I was just like, wait, this is, <laughs> this is fucked up. <laughs> it Which is so strange because it's not the same for men, like, at all. It's just, like, an ongoing, like, joke that, like, boys will like start masturbating at a young age or something like that like it's just a part of their life and of them getting older and it's like so freely talked about what the Um, fuck someone stop it literally we're talking about 
pleasure. We're talking about pleasure right now. <laughs> they yeah. need to go have sex. They, they do. Go. They, they do. need to get laid. Did I ever tell you that one time I was like witnessing someone like road rage and like they pulled out a gun and just like held it out the window at the person behind them. I was like, that happened on the way to poor things actually. So it's relevant. Oh, it's relevant. Yeah, it's relevant. I was like, I did not think people did that anymore. This is not the Wild West. That is crazy. <laughs> How is that le- like? It's definitely not legal. No, but like, but like still. <laughs> like I was at your first reaction of like, let me just let me just whip this one out, <laughs> roll down the window. Yeah, yeah, that's that crazy. Um, but back to masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like I'll ask like. You know, a guy I'm seeing, like, when they start masturbating, if we're yeah. ever having that, like, silly conversation. Yeah, yeah. And they'll just be like, oh, I was, like, 10 or 9. Yeah. And I'm just like, man, I didn't start till middle school. <laughs> like, I, I was just too worried to search it up, you know? Yeah. And it's just, like, not talked about, like, amongst your friends. Like, I remember it being a really big deal the first time me and my friends talked about it in high school. And, like, it's, there's so much shame around, I mean, there's so much shame around, like, women women's sexuality already and even especially during that time where you're trying to like figure out like your teens but yeah it's just not a similar experience at all with like men and women it's so like very black and white um yeah I remember talking to someone in freshman year and like asking like do you masturbate and they were like no not at all and I literally was like in my head I was like I'm going to kill myself I'm like, I'm weird, I'm weird, I'm weird. <laughs> there is something so wrong with me. <laughs> I don't know. I guess maybe everyone has, like, a different libido, and I just have no idea. Like, I've never been in someone else's body, so I'll never know. But I'll never know. It's just, it's so interesting. But it Bella, interesting. relatable. Relatable. Relatable as fuck. Yeah. I also relate to, like, hooking up with the Duncan Wedderburn. Oh, yeah. Because, like... Sometimes you just want to fuck around and find out. Literally. Like, you're like, I know this is a terrible, silly decision, but, like, here we are. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, like, if he's, like, buying me food and, you know, I'm having sex. Like, you know, like I'm set. I'm set. Yeah. And at the end of the day, in this movie, he's good at having sex. Yeah. Notably. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, eventually you go through that phase in your life where you're having like a bunch of hookups and you're like sex is awesome and then at some point it clicks that you're like wait maybe i want to like the person <laughs> that i'm hooking up with and that's just such a revolutionary it's a thought. super revolutionary <laughs> like wait this can aid to the experience like <laughs> so i also like understood her growing apart yeah duncan whatever yeah yeah no i love to see i love to see a white girl wedding. So just, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Bleep. Redacted. Bleep. <laughs> Not redacted white girl. Um, no, yeah, I do. I love to see her winning with that. I guess she's happy in her relationship at the end. Yeah. I personally would not get into a relationship with McCandless, but I would have some type of polycule. So. Yeah, I'd, I'd settle for polycule. <laughs> and that's where I'm at. And that's where I'm at. <laughs> That seems like a good amount of discussion. I think so. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Woo! Hooray. 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 Thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Bye. Bye. So what are you here for?